presentation of the conference written by Father Johannes Schneider, an Austrian Franciscan. Some of you may be acquainted with his major study translated into English, published four years ago, Virgo Ecclesia Fact, is a study of the, of the Office of the Passion, St. Francis, from which is taken the antiphone, which we heard about in the last paper, the Marian antiphone, which so influenced St. St. Maximilian, to what extent it influenced Scotus, we do not know, except, of course, that it was well circulated in those, in those times. Father Schneider has prepared a very simple reflection on a number of passages from St. Francis, which clearly indicate that the, what is known as the Franciscan Thesis, the absolute primacy of Jesus, and we may also add Mary, because, in effect, St. Francis expressly held to the doctrine that we know by the name of Immaculate Conception. Therefore, we may speak of the Franciscan thesis in its com completeness in St. Francis of Assisi. He calls these thoughts the pre-scotistic reflections of a simple man. The English has been translated from the original German it is in some ways a summary of a longer study which appeared, appeared in one of those hard-to-find German anthologies, not allergies, and which only the Germans read. But as, as you will see, it is not a complex or difficult uh, presentation to follow. On the motive of the incarnation of God according to St. Francis of Assisi, Father Schneider begins with a phrase, that is of St. Francis, although he took it initially from the legend of St. Quem Amor Humanavet, whom love made man. The first part, whom love, that is the love of God, Deus Caritas Est, primacy of charity and the will in God, made man. That is the reason. There is no other reason for the incarnation in St. Francis, simply the love of God. Even if Adam and Eve had not sinned, even if the angels had not fallen, Christ would have become man. That is the reason both for creation and redemption. Father Schneider will carefully illustrate those points. If you attend very carefully, he says, to the, uh, uh, to the actual text of St. Francis, you will see that it is as subtle as anything, except that our minds are not quite as sharp as they once used to be. That is characteristic of a materialistic age. So it simply asks you in three considerations, considerations Father comes to a very simple conclusion. We see here the absolute privacy, the privacy. First, the love that is revealed in the incarnation, and after that comes the love that expresses itself in the redemption, not the other way around. Because we sin, therefore God loved us, etc. Therefore, sin more bravely, and you get more love of God. Now, that is the obvious uh, point that Scotus uh, will make. But it is clear in St. Francis, he was not a sentimentalist in expressing himself in this, fashion, uh, in this fashion. That leads, of course, to the famous distinction of Scotus between Savior and Redeemer, salvation and redemption. Even if we had no need of redemption, we would have needed to be saved. That's the point. We are uh, actually amongst the elect, the saints, as a, a saints, because Christ saved us. 
We are not predestined independently of Christ. There is no such thing as a grace of God that is not a grace that comes to the merit for, neither for us nor for the angels, whereas that is not true in other theses uh, that were current, or perhaps more current as Scotus' time among the scholastic. Uh, further question, where do you find this in scripture and tradition? That will take up in other, pa uh, other paper. Here we simply want to establish, establish the starting point of the golden thread that unites all of Franciscan history, spirituality, and mi uh, missionary activity. From St. Francis through Scotus to Maximilian Kolbe, golden thread is the uh, term of St. Maximilian. Here I simply point out that we saw where the thread connects Scotus and Maximilian Kolbe, a characteristic saint of our, ta uh, our time. Now we want to see where the where, where, what is the starting point of the threat, threat in, in St. Uh, in in Francis? And ultimately we'll see, as it were, how despite all the opposition to Father Balich at the Vatican II, he didn't get his definition of the universal mediation of Our Lady, it, it a, nonetheless Scotus had his impact. The Blessed Virgin Mary in the mystery of Christ and the Church obviously reflects the Franciscan thesis, even if Adam had not sinned. This is what God originally planned. And therefore, a perfect redemption follows from that. So I've summarized the paper. Now I'll read it for you. According to the legend of St. Clare of Assisi, admirabilis femidat, first two words of the legend, legend, wonderful, admirable woman, uh, woman, Francis had persuaded this young lady to preserve the pearl of virginal chastity for that blessed bridegroom whom love had made man, Life of St. Clair, by Thomas of Solano. The author of the legend placed on the lips of Francis a theological formula pregnant with meaning, quem amor humanavet, whom love made man. Francis quite obviously could have made frequent use of this phrase, as is evident from a glance at his opuscula and the other surviving sayings. The primary motive of the incarnation of God articulated in this formula, quem amor humanavit, is also point of contact between the contemplative theology of this man, namely Francis, and a fundamental principle in the work of the Marian doctor. For when John Scotus assigns primacy to a holy life over learning, the perfection of St. Francis of Assisi and his ardent love of God cry out as beautiful witnesses. Scotus indeed stresses the surpassing knowledge of the charity and the universal primacy of Christ, the noblest of God's works. This assessment of Pope Paul VI in his apostolic letter, Alma Parens, firmly identifies the frontier where the poverello who considered himself an ignorant and unscholarly person and the subtle doctor meet. In the works of Duns Scotus, not a single allusion to some saying of Francis, documenting, as it were, the literary transfer of the ruddy earth of Assisi to Oxford, can be encountered. Nonetheless, it is impossible to bring the tower of faith uh, in relation with the little, uh, 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 it is not impossible to bring the tower of faith in relation with the little man supporting the church of the Pope on his shoulder. Scotus did not only follow the founder of his order by wearing the gray habit and in the faithful observance of the rule. The decree of beatification sets in relief the pivot of his teaching, asserting that he taught with exceptional piety the mystery of the incarnation of the divine word. My aim in this conference is to expound a number of thoughts of St. Francis in illustration of this mystery, thoughts which may reasonably be qualified as pre-Scotist. These did not reach the Scott master via literary transmission, but were to be found wherever the widely diffused spirituality of the founder was lived by the brothers. 
first. Exquonatus fuit nobis, oportuit nos salvare, birth and salvation, the important point here, by the very fact, because he was born for us, out of love, therefore there arose in a certain sense an obligation, noblesse oblige, to redeem us, not the other way around, because we needed redemption, therefore God provided the incarnation. The incarnation is the central salvific act, if you wish to put it in those terms. The following pericope from the so-called compilatio assisiensis is to be considered as one of those closest to Francis's soul. For blessed Francis had a reverence for the birthday of the Lord greater than that for any other solemnity of the Lord. Although in his other solemnities the Lord brought our salvation to be in fact, nonetheless, because the Lord was born for us, as blessed Francis was accustomed to say, he had to work our salvation. Hence he desired that every Christian on that day should exult in the Lord, and out of love for him who had given himself to us, every man should not only joyfully generous, be joyfully generous with the poor, but also with animals and birds. Francis's exceptional love for creatures, therefore, is grounded on his profound reverence for the feast of the Lord's nativity, greater than that for any other feast of the Lord. Thomas of Solano, in his Memoriale, includes this translation, tradition that Francis celebrated the birthday of the child Jesus with a joy surpassing that of any other solemnity of the Lord. He called Christ's birthday the Feast of Feasts because on this day God became a little babe hung from human breasts. He sharply corrected a brother's scruples about eating meat on Christmas when it fell on Friday because one should not give the name Friday to any day on which the, such a child was born for us. Francis distinguished the festive mystery of the poor Natus es nobis from the, for him, costly reflections on the mystery of salvation proper to Good Friday, a mystery recalled by the obligatory Friday fast of the rule. The birth of a child in the crib should be free, at least on this day, of thoughts of that child's death on the cross. Francis admits that the Lord also worked our salvation in his other feasts, but he immediately adds a startling qualification. Tamen ex quonatus fuit nobis, or portuit nos salvare, literally, because he was born for us, he had to work our salvation. When the traditionally trained theological ear hears this passage, it is taken to mean he was born of the need to redeem us. But in a more careful translation, a quite different and perhaps contrary logic appears. From the fact that he was born for us, there arises a need, uh, need to redeem us. Although our need to be redeemed by him is not called into question, it does not appear here as the prime motive for the birth of Christ. For Francis, the incarnation itself is the primary reason for the redemption, and not vice versa. Because he was now born for us, there arose out of his assumption of a human nature the need to redeem us. Francis does not reflect on the motive of the incarnation theoretically, but sees first the fact of Jesus' birth for us. It's very important because Scotus is not presenting a possible hypothesis when he talks about uh, the incar uh, incarnation as, the, as an absolute. He is reflecting on a fact as presented here in St. Francis. The fact of this being born for us links to the Redeemer, consequent on his becoming flesh, namely, to exist for the obligation or part of it to live and carry out this for to the very end. Because on his incarnation he finds us factually in need of redemption, he must then also redeem us. 
The other saving deeds up to the Passion, Resurrection, and Second Coming are necessary consequences of this first saving deed, his incarnation and birth of the Virgin. Necessary is not to be taken in the sense of natural necessity, but that, uh, quote-unquote, that fittingness necessity, the rationis necessity of St. Anselm. Not that God had to do it, he did it out of grace, but because he is so good, he did it anyway. Anyway, there wasn't any question asked about it. A reference to the motive of the incarnation is also found in the Nobis. To underscore the Natus Nobis, Francis comments that on such a day every Christian should exult in the Lord and out of love, of that will uh, will where uh, uh, and out of the love of that will wherewith he gave himself uh, for us every man should generously share that joy not only with the poor but with animals and birds as well with the proeus amore is meant the love of christ as the following quisemitipsum dated nobis explains christ makes fully present this gift of himself in his incarnation the love of the one who will give himself to us becomes the motive of the incarnation. Hence, at the origin of the need to redeem us, we find the love of the incarnation. It is not our need to be redeemed which moves God to love and give himself in the incarnation, but that love moves God to give himself to us in the incarnation. Thus, the need to redeem us arises out of the decision to love us. Francis calls all men to be generous with creatures. In that call rings the note of universality attached to the incarnation, that is, is, the creation was not made as an end in itself, but only because God had previously willed the incarnation. De facto, that is the only reason the world exists at at, at present. Hence, every man should answer the self-giving of God with joyful largesse, cum hilaritate esset largus. Such joyful generosity on God's part is linked to the origin of the Incarnation. Its motive is simply love of the one whom Francis calls joy and happiness and clear, merciful donor. Without any gloomy pressure of a needed redemption of fallen mankind, God gives himself freely and joyfully to the gift of his creation. Therefore, between Francis and Calvin, between Scotus and Jansen, there is an unbridgeable abyss. There is a completely different uh, point of departure. The Calvinist begins with the absolute universality of sin, sin, and then proceeds, as it were, to talk about uh, the Deus Solus, the, the gratia victrix of, of, of Jan- Jansen. There is no place for freedom. There is no place for cooperation. There is no place for Mary. And that is the significance of the Immaculate con- con- Conception. It is the dividing line between two absolutely inalterably opposed uh, mentalities. We see the same thing in a certain sense between the opposition between Scotus and Kant. Second second point, super omnia voluit ipse, the will to become flesh. uh, He willed this above all things, Uh, literally the Latin. The introductory catechesis in the second letter to the faithful is a meditation on the verbal carum factum word made flesh. The most high father through his angel Saint Gabriel sent, announced, announced and sent in Saint Francis are more or less, uh, more or less uh, uh, equivalents. His word, so worthy, so holy and glorious into the womb of the holy and glorious Virgin Mary from whose womb he, the word, took true flesh of our humanity and frailty. Although he was rich beyond all compare, he, with the most blessed virgin, chose to be poor in the world. First point. Nunciavit verbum patris, sending the word. 
Announcing the word is also sending the word in this case. Francis, inspired by the prologue of Stan's gospel, chose the phrase verbum patris, word of the Father. He is treating of the sending or communication of the words of Christ, who is the word of the Father, through the words of the Holy Spirit. Hence, he is treating of the revelation of the Trinity through the word. The Father sends his Son as his word. Francis substitutes here for send the word nunciare, literally meaning to report, to announce, to proclaim. In the preceding verse, he had said that through messengers, nunci, he would send the word of the Lord. With the word nunciare, Francis signals a message from the Father. One, therefore, might interpret thus, this word of the Father, the Father sends as his messenger. Therefore, the revelatory character of the sending of the word by the Father is underscored. The meaning of the incarnation is the revelation of God as Father through his Son as Word, the message and good tidings of the Father. Point two. Recepit carnum humanitatis, the assumption of men. John 1.14, the passage of the word, verbum to flesh caro, is indicated by the word made, factum. Francis distinguishes in this event two activities. The word nunciavit explains the action of the Father. He had sent into the womb of the Virgin Mary his word as the message revealing himself. The word recepit indicates the action of the word. He had taken from the virginal womb the flesh of our human nature. The virgin here is not the one who receives, rather it is the word who receives from the virginal womb. In the context of the incarnation as such, the word is passive both in reference to the action of the father from whom he is sent and in reference to the mother from whom he receives flesh. Even though all things were made through him, as Francis stresses, Pecumonia sunt facta, he received his human nature as a gift from the womb of the virgin. In this sense, then, can the saying recorded by Solano be understood, God become a little babe, hung from human breasts, ab ubra pependit humana. God became so poor in the incarnation that he hung pependit from human breasts, and so likewise dependit, dependit on these. After we catch that, as were, the, uh, the nuances in the Latin uh, use of the different prefixes, pendere, to hang, hang. Pependit, dependit, uh, where he emptied himself and became totally, completely humble, completely, he would ultimately hang on the cross. But the first is, he hung on the virgin, which underscores what we call co-redemption. Uh, co-redemption, therefore, begins precisely in the, in the, in the, uh, the joint, uh, uh, the union of the mother and the, uh, and the, and the child. Uh, without seeing that point, uh, point impossible to understand uh, the redemption correctly, uh, correctly. Hence the importance of uh, co-redemption to understand that is based, of course, on the Franciscan thesis, the absolute privacy. Francis stresses the word caro, flesh, with the adjective vera, true or real. He sees in the receiving of flesh the assumption of a true and a real human nature. The assumption of our human nature, humanitatis nostre, is not to be taken merely as a single individual man isolated from other individual men. With the assumption of a historic, biological, concrete human nature by the word in being made flesh, the entirety of mankind is in some way assumed. Thereby, the word has in a certain way assumed every man personally. On the basis of patristic insights, the Second Vatican Council stresses just this point. With his incarnation, the Son of God has in a certain way united himself with every man. In the letter of the Pavarello, his understanding of the Assumptio Hominis possesses a personal relevance. Well, St. Francis doesn't mean the baptism is no longer needed, that everybody is automatically saved personally. He's simply pointing out that, that 
not only the entire creation, the world, but especially each created person, per person that exists for the sake of, uh, of Christ. And this for the sake of Christ becomes something very, uh, very real at the incarnation. And therefore, to refuse Christ is a horrible thing. Horrible thing. To refuse the Savior. We see that in the fall of Lucifer and the angels who agreed with, agreed with him. And we see it also in the fall of our first parents, which involved all of us in some, in some way. Conversely, firstly, all of that, as it were, is a kind of a, an inversion, turning inside out and upside down, of what should have been. Hence, as it were, the recirculation and the recapitulation. That, uh, but the recapitulation would have uh, uh, occurred even if Adam and Eve had not sinned. Thereby, the word has an assertion. No. In the letter of the Pavarello, his understanding of the Assumptio Hominis possesses a personal relevance. At the very beginning of the letter, he apologizes that on account of sickness and weakness in his body, he is unable to visit and announce the word of the Father to each man personally. This word, however, had assumed the real flesh of our human nature and of our frailty. Thereby, he assumed as well the, uh, the infirmity and weakness of my body. Infirmitatum et debilitatum mei corporis, as Francis might add. In verse 2, he spoke of the words of my Lord, verba domini mei. He had experienced the Lord as word of the Father, who in the incarnation had assumed his frail human nature. Goal of the incarnation of the word is the assumption of human nature in its reality and frailty. And thereby he does not affirm that this frailty of man's fallen state in need of redemption is proper to human nature as such. If one speaks of redemption in the perspective of the incarnation, then this redemption consists in the full assumption of the frailty of our nature. The mode of thinking here is that cultivated later on by Scotus in his distinction between nature and grace, nature and sin. And it's the denial of those points, which is at the heart of uh, much of the Reformation theology and anthropology. Third point, voluripse eligere paupertatum, choice of poverty. Uh, in verse, much misunderstood today because it's understood solely in social economic, uh, economic terms, whereas here we see it as quite different. In verse 5, the activity of the word comes to the fore. Quicum divas esset super omnia, vododipse in mundo cum beatissima virgine, matre sua eligere paupertata. Manuscripts are commonly found with neither punctuation nor capital letters. Insertion of these is the responsibility of the editor of a text. A first decision is that the end of verse 4 is determined by a period after the fragilitatis nostre. Verse 5 begins with the relative pronoun qui, which capitalized begins a new passage. Thereby a new thought is introduced. The Son of God, on assuming human nature, together with his mother, chose to live in this world in poverty. Thus writes Francis in the non-definitive rule, and he became poor, he himself and the Blessed Virgin and his disciples. Taken as connoting a community, this ipse cum beatissima virgine might mean ipse et beata virgo. But one can also understand this qui as a relative pronoun linked to the preceding verbum patris, from which from the virgin to uh, uh, the, the word who or which from the virgin took our frailty. So read, this sentence continues the earlier trend of thought. It will describe the consequence of receiving our frail humanitas. This passage may be translated thus, from this womb he has taken the real flesh of our human nature and his frailty, and thereby, although rich over all else, chose with the Blessed Virgin to be poor in this world. The richness of Christ in the Pauline sense is his pre-existence in the form of God, of which he emptied himself by the assumption of the human nature and so became poor. 
the cum divis esit explains the preceding tam dignum, etc., whereby Francis indicates the existence of the word in the Father in heaven. The counterpart on earth to the heaven of the Father, de cielo, is the womb of the Virgin in utero. In heavenly glory is followed by earthly fragilitas. With his fragilitas, the word will choose pauperitas as his mode of existence in the world. In the world, poverty here does not connote social status, but the assumption of the frail human nature. The divine word cum matre sua shows frailty and poverty. In the context of the preceding excuius utero, the cum here is to be understood in the instrumental sense. With the virgin, through the taking of frailty from her, the word shows poverty in the world. A second editorial decision is the comma after super omnia. This phrase, frequently used by Francis, a formula equivalent to a superlative, is to be set in relation with the inspired word cum divis esset of 2 Corinthians 8-9. And he willed, although incomparably rich, to choose poverty for himself. The Pauline citation, however, permits the comma to be so placed after the esset that the comparative super omnia modifies the voluid ipse, Although he was rich, he chose above all to be poor in the world. Thereby, the willing and choosing of Christ will be stressed super omnia volut ipse eligere. Together with the virgin, the choice of poverty in this world thereby becomes analogously a consequence of the assumption of our frail humanity from the virgin, exactly the position of Scotus. The redemption, the caro passibilis, and thereby also for our, our, our lady, is a consequence of the love not the antecedent that occasions the, 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 the law. Oh. Hence, the primary motive for the descent of the word from the Father into the Virgin is to be sought in the formula, super omnia volodipse edigere, above all, he himself willed to choose this. The motive for the incarnation of God according to the sense of this text is above all, he himself, ipse, his will, voluit, his choice, edigere, whereby the assumption of human nature as his essence is preferred to all else super omnia. Third part, per filium tuo nos creasti, created through your son. Were we created through the word or in virtue, uh, by reason of the word incarnate? Two different theories, uh, the one called the first one, the Thomistic, the Bonaventure followed it uh, also. The incarnation is occasioned. By, by, uh, by the, therefore, the, inca uh, 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 the, the incarnated location by the fo uh, fall. The creation is only through the word, and hence the different interpretations of the great hymns of St. Uh, Saint Paul, uh, Paul, which most exegetes, the majority hold, should be read in a scotistic sense. Per sancto voluntatum tuum, through your holy will, Francis offers a salvation history vision of creation, incarnation, and redemption in the great prayer of thanksgiving found in the non-definitive uh, definitive rule. We thank you for your very self, that by your holy will and through your only begotten Son with the Holy Spirit, you created all things spiritual and corporal and placed us, made according to your image and likeness, in paradise. And by our own fault we fell. Important enough. We were first created in the image and likeness of the Word incarnate. Then we fell. Not as we were created in the image of the word eternal, then we fell, then the incarnation was, was well. This is the point Father Schneider wishes to stress. And we thank you because just as through your Son you created us, so that in holy love wherewith you loved us, you had him, true God and true man, be born of the glorious and most blessed Holy Mary, ever virgin, and you willed us captives to be redeemed through his cross and blood and, de and, and, and death. 
point one, subpoint, propter ipsum, for your own sake. Francis sees as first reason for thanks, propter semitipsum. This leads to the song of thanksgiving, a character stressing freedom, love of the good for his own sake, and not need of the subject loving. It suffices to thank God for his own sake, for his very will. He is all our riches in every regard. Omnia divitia nostra ad sufficientiam, as Francis prayed on Mount Alvernia. God needs not recognition by creatures to be honored, because his beloved Son, together with the Holy Spirit, thanks him on behalf of the entire creation. For the Son ever suffices the Father in every regard. Quitibi semper sufficit ad omnia. This sufficient dissipates the impression of need or utility as motive for thanks and leaves between creator and creation a place for freedom. Second subpoint: Quod creaste omnia, trinitarian creation. The second ground for thanksgiving is the creation of all. Quod creaste omnia. The creation of all is indicated by St. Francis in relating the creaste to the you of the Father and in viewed in strict relation to the propter temetipsum. The making of creation has no other motive than the holy will of God, per sanctum voluntatum tua. By that holy will, the Father, through his only begotten Son, together with the Holy Spirit, simultaneously created all things. Francis sees creation as the common work of the Trinity, through which sup omnia spiritualia et corporalia, the visible and invisible, have been created. Point, Subpoint three, nos ad imaginem suam, in your image. In relation to Genesis 1.26, Francis sees men as the image and likeness of the Creator. Nos ad imaginem tuam et similitudinis factos. For homo, he substitutes the more personal nos. Francis recognizes himself to have been included with the whole of mankind in this primitive text prior to the fall. In the account of the original fall, the nos finds its continuation. And nos perculbum nostrum cecidimus. In the next verse, he brings the nos in relation to the incarnation and redemption three times more. For Francis, the entire work of creation and salvation occurred in view of a single, indivisible mankind. He himself personally belongs to this mankind, and so is accountable for this fall, a reality pointed out by the perculpum nostro. Whence it is particularly significant that God made us in his image and likeness simply because he wished to, this creation of us is no mere pre-existing idea in God's plan, but an actual part of the spiritualia et corporalia, which God made according to his image and likeness. It appears here that here Francis, with the expression per unicum fidium tuum, had in mind not only the pre-existent logos, but also the Son in his future manhood, through which and according to whose image and likeness we have been made. Second point under the third section. Ad imaginum delecti fili tui, according to the image of your son. The aforementioned theme found in the non-definitive rule, 1221, is also expounded in the fifth admonition. Take note, O man, how nobly the Lord God has made you in creating and forming you in the body according to the image of his beloved son and in the soul according to his likeness. And yet every creature under heaven in his own way serves, acknowledges, and obeys his creator better than you do. And even the demons were not solely responsible for crucifying him, but it was you who crucified him with them, and still crucify him by taking pleasure in your vices and sins. Via the you or direct address, Francis reminds contemporary mankind in what an excellent state God by their creation God had originally placed men. Qui creavit et formavit te. 
The character of human beings as the image and the likeness is related to the beloved Son of the Father. Francis relates the image of the Son's uh, body and the likeness of... Uh, excuse me. Francis relates the image to the Son's body and the likeness to his soul. The formula ad imaginum directi fidi tui expresses the Son's role as exemplar for the creation of mankind. The Son is the imago, archetype of the still-to-be-created mankind seen in relation to the body, and this in the order of concepts given by Francis, before being the likeness as similitudo, archetype for the soul of man. Of how the Son can first be imago for the corporal nature of man before the Son himself assumed this nature, and prior to any consideration of how the fall into sin must affect the consummation of the Incarnation, Francis provides no theological explanation. This is the doctrine of, the explanation is the doctrine of predestination of Scotus. That is, that God originally foresaw and willed, willed Christ as the head of all creation and all the elect with him and uh, through, uh, through him, and in a very special way, uniquely, uniquely one of those creatures, creatures, the Virgin, uh, Virgin Mary espoused to a man named Joseph as his mother and who thereby he made immaculate. But his intuition is clear. Before any discussion at all of the fall into sin and the cross can take place, and before the factual assumption of human nature by the Son actually occurs, Francis perceives mankind in his corporal spiritual nature as being made according to the image and the likeness of the Son, and by that fact alone, placed in a state of excellence, of excellence. Is nothing more than the divine counsels of salvation as they are presented by St. Paul in the first chapter of the Ephesians and then again in the Colossians. Third point, uh, sub-point. Per suam sanctum dilectionem tuam, love and incarnation. Sub-point one. Sico creasti, sic fecisti. Continuity of creation and incarnation. Mention of the fall into sin in the uh, non-definitive rule, chapter 23, within the flow of the thanksgiving canticle occurs almost as close as possible to that of creation and incarnation. At Perculpum Nostrum Cecidimus. Francis, however, does not linger over this and in a final last breath of praise makes explicit reference to the first. Quia, sicut perfidium tuum nos creasti, sic persantum dilexiorum tuum fecisti. fecisti. As, uh, as uh, you, uh, uh, as through the Son, you, uh, your Son, you created us, uh, so by your holy love you have made us. Love is the motivation, as it were, for the, uh, for the, uh, for the, for the world, but specifically for the human family. The linkage of sicu creasti et sic fecisti underscores the initiative of the Father and the continuity of creation and incarnation. This continuity stands between our creation through the Son and his incarnation through the love with which the Father has loved us. Francis sees the incarnation of the Son as a continuation of the formation of men according, uh, according to the image and the likeness of the Son. And therefore, the primacy of charity in the Trinity is uh, also the motive for the incarnation, the center point of the theology of contingents. Whereas the Father through the Son has made all things and formed us in his image and likeness, in the incarnation the Son himself is object of the creative power of the Father. In the place of omnia et nos, we now find ipsum verum deum et hominem, 
In place of the perfilium, we find expulsione, and in place of the creaste, we find nasce fecisti. With fecisti, as with creaste, the action of the father is connoted. The word nasce in its passive form implies with hindsight the coming of uh, the coming to be a man of the son, which here joins to the creativity of the father an action by the virgin whereby she becomes his mother. In this sense, the mother shares with the father in the act of realization of the incarnation of the word. Second subpoint: per sanctum delectionem tuum, through your holy love. In the place of the holy will of the Father in creation, in the incarnation there is introduced his holy love wherewith he has loved us. More than creation, the incarnation of the Son is a personal act of love of the Father for us. The Sancta Delexio Quadricisti knows, without a direct relation to the sin through which we fell, appears as the only motive of the incarnation. The Sancta Delexio stands in immediate relation to the Sancta Voluntas of the Father as the principal motive of creation. Looking back on this holy will as origin of creation, the holy love as the origin of the incarnation constitutes the excellence and consummation of creation. This special love wherewith he has loved us is given expression in the fact that the Father of the Son let the Son be born of the Virgin from whom the Word received the real flesh of our human nature and his frailty. The love of the Father for us consists not only in the gift of his Son to us men, but also in the assumption of our manhood in being born of the Virgin. Thereby, the human nature of the Son becomes the gift, a gift of human nature to the Son. Third and final subpoint: Nos captivos redeme voluisti. You have willed to redeem us. The love with which the Father has loved us and on account of which he has let his Son become man for us also becomes in turn motive for the assumption of fallen nature, human nature, in view of our redemption through the cross of Christ. Et percrucium et sanguinem et mortem ipsius nos captivos redimi voluisti. Such was the will of this Father, as Francis writes, that his blessed and glorious Son, whom he gave us and was born for us, offered himself through his own blood as sacrifice and host on the altar of the cross not on account of himself, through whom all things were made, but for our sins. In this text as well, we find the giving of the Son to us through the Father and his birth for us, primary considerations which do not have any necessary relationship with his self-offering on the altar of the cross. The latter follows upon the will of the Father, with whose will the Son unites his own will. The will to redeem us through the cross entails no other obligation other than the obligation of love. This love, then, had decided once for all to take as his own the frailty of human nature. In this light, the saying of Francis found in the legend of Perusina, ex quonatus fuit nobis oportuit nos salvare, can be paraphrased, because he was now born once for all out of love, this love spurred him to love us to the end. Thank you.